Hey, well, good morning. My name is Aiden, one of the pastors. If you're new with us, kind of checking out uh, Grace Online here. We're glad you're with us. I would love to hear from you. Sometimes I'm not always sure who I'm talking to, so if you're watching this, I would love to hear from you, uh, hear your story. Anyways, we could be praying for you, any of that uh, kind of stuff. We kicked off a series called God Is Last Week. If you haven't heard that, I would, I would challenge you to go back, listen to that, maybe put it on double speed, kind of get through it. But this week, we're kind of continuing this conversation. And one of the things that we said was we, we pulled from this quote by a guy named A.W. Tozer who says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. And what we've been saying is this, as we go through the series called God Is, what we want to do is we want to say, when we think of God, what do we think of? And compare that to who God says that he is, because we all have an image of who God is, right? And a lot of times it's, it's kind of based on our, our personality. It's based on how we grew up. It's based on our experience and background with church and, and maybe Christians in general, and maybe certain passages in the Bible we've read, maybe certain cultural things that have kind of infiltrated and shaped our understanding of God, that all these things play into our view of God. I think this is so interesting. A couple years ago, I remember reading somewhere about a college professor named Scott McKnight, and he, he would have students every year, and he taught uh, a class on God, and, and he would, somewhere in the semester early on, he would have them do kind of a questionnaire about themselves, what they liked, what their temperament was, uh, what, what they were like, how they would respond in certain situations, and he had the students kind of go through this little questionnaire. And then something he would do is a couple weeks later, he'd give them a questionnaire about what God is like, what's his temperament, what are things that he's into, how do he respond? And he said almost 90, 95% of the time, they were so similar. They overlapped so much between what the individual was like and what they think God was like. And oftentimes we can be the same, right? That God can look similar to us. And what we want to do for this series, we're going to continue today, is take a look at who does God say that he is. In this passage in Exodus, you heard in the video, um, it's this where God kind of is the self-disclosure, self-description of who he is. It says he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's a just God. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now we'll get to that kids thing. I want to tell you, we're going to get to that the last week and unpack what that looks like. I think there's a lot more grace in it than it sounds like. But this passage is the most quoted uh, verse in the Bible by the Bible. The, the, the psalmists and prophets and people circle back to this passage about God. It's his self-disclosure. It, he audibly says, this is who I am and this is what I am like. And last week, we kind of walked through this tension, right? That we, we kind of walked through the story up to this point. We see that God is powerful. We see that when God gives the, the commandments, when he appears to the people, he appears like a storm on the mountain. Fire and earthquakes and trumpets sounding. He appears like a storm on the mountainside. That there's this tension of his power. But also this passage shows us that he's powerful, but he's also personal. That God has a name. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. He has a personal name. In this passage, he's saying, this is what I am like. This is what I am like. And he calls us. He calls Israel as God's people, as his own people, to bear his name, to carry his name, to represent him to the world. Because the promise that God made to Abraham, that is he's fulfilling out through his people of Israel, that we see him revealing himself to, that, that he says, I want you to be his chosen people. That I want you to be a specific 
to live in a specific way that when the nations see you, it would reflect me, that you will be my representative people here on earth. And so what we're doing is we're kind of walking through these different descriptions of who God says he is. And for the sake of today, what we want to look at and unpack for a couple minutes is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. I would encourage you at home. Maybe it's just pausing this for a second and just saying that, just saying that slowly. The compassionate and gracious God. Because I'll be honest, I was preparing this week, kind of reading some stuff, flying through some stuff, trying to put some stuff together, flying through some stuff, and it was almost towards the end of this week before I was coming in to speak that, Lord, I've been, I've been so preoccupied with getting this together that I, I've been blown over this character quality of yourself, of your compassionate nature and your gracious nature. And sometimes we just need what we think we know about God to be true in our souls and let it kind of wash over our souls. And today what I want to do is just take a look at these two words, these two words that kind of go together that God uses to describe himself, and then almost look at a case study from Scripture where we see these playing out. But can we just pray together as we jump in today? God, I pray that you would, wherever we're at, that you would kind of still our hearts, calm our souls that we have things going on at work, we've got kids running around, we've got relationships we're trying to figure out, we've got finances we have to deal with, and and then we come to you, we come to your word, and we don't always feel like they go together. And so I pray today that as we just unpack this quality that you say is true about yourself, that we might pull it into our everyday existence and might make sense of it in the context of our lives. Because God, you are not separate, you are not distant, you are not outside, but you are a God who is present with us, who is personal and powerful. Amen. Now, I am not a, not a Hebrew scholar. I just play one on your computer screen. And so what I want to look at for a second is these two words, compassionate and gracious. These are two words that oftentimes appear together. When you see them throughout scripture, they appear together. There's two words. The word for compassion is rahun. I just can't do like the Hebrew thing. Rahun. And then the, the word gracious is hanun. <laughs> Forgive me. But the, these two words, rahun and hanun, these two words that you see oftentimes together, they're Hebrew word pairing. And we have this in English, right? Uh, sick and tired, right? Sometimes they're sick and tired. You're happy and healthy, right? Bacon and cheddar. Now, I don't know if you're doing the kosher, if that's the most applicable, but words that kind of naturally go together, and oftentimes you see them appear together. That's, that's these two words, Rahun and Hanun. They come together. They appear together, compassionate and gracious. Now, what is important? God gives us self-disclosure of himself. He's like, this is what I'm like. And these are the two words that he uses first. The two words that he uses first are compassion and gracious. Compassion and gracious. Now, the first thing you say about someone is very important, Right? Like, if, if you go to, to say something to somebody or describe something to somebody and you say the most important thing last, they're like, why did you wait till the end to say that? However, oftentimes when we're describing ourselves or our kids or something about us, or our, that we describe the most important thing first, right? If you know Pastor Bob, Pastor Bob has been here for 50 years this year. Pastor Bob, right? That if you meet Pastor Bob, maybe you're not sure who Pastor Bob is, but maybe you are sure of who the good-looking pastor is, right? Because... I know this more than I know my own name, that if Pastor Bob meets you, the first thing he says about himself is that he is very good looking, right? Because it's the most important thing about, he needs to make sure that you know. Now, in full disclosure, I'm not sure why he needs to tell you that, right? But it's the most important thing about him. Uh, there is a pastor named John Mark Comer who actually wrote a book on this passage with a lot of, it's, it's wonderful and very easy to, to take in. But he says this, in the Hebrew scriptures, 
Order matters. Order is a clue as to what is the most important. The fact that compassionate and gracious are at the top of the list of Yahweh's character traits means that it's the dominant one. That is important for us today. That's important for us today. His disposition, his default setting is that he is compassionate and gracious. This is the first thing that he says about himself. This is the first thing that he discloses about himself is that he is compassionate and he is gracious. When this passage is quoted throughout the Bible, we said over 20 times throughout the scripture that it is quoted. In almost every case, in almost every case, to people who are in exile, to people who are struggling, to people who are dealing with their own sin, this passage is used to remind someone in this tough spot of the true character of God, leading to the fact that he's primarily compassionate and gracious. For some of us, when we, when we hear this, when we hear about God being compassionate or God being gracious, I'm just being honest, I know this. For some of us, we just kind of tune out, right? Because for some of us, you, you grew up in church, you've been around, even if you've been around for five years, we, we talk about this all the time, and it can become commonplace. It can become kind of run, oh, God's grace. Yeah, that's great. Very thankful for it, right? And for some of you, if that's you... you It's not really that meaningful because we don't, maybe you're in a season where you don't really feel like you need it. You don't feel like you've dropped the ball big time. You don't feel like you screwed up. You feel like you've kind of been keeping stuff together. And so we're like, his compassion and grace, graciousness towards us, that's, that's nice. I might need it someday. My kid needs it for sure, but maybe you feel like you don't really need it. And for others of you, And maybe this is somebody you know that when we talk about God's compassionate nature, his gracious, maybe you're like, that's cool. But somewhere deep inside of you, maybe you wouldn't even say this, that you just feel like it's not true. Just somewhere deep inside of you, you're like, yeah, that's cool that he says that about himself, but I just don't think it's true. Because maybe that hasn't been your experience. Because you feel like God hasn't heard you, hasn't been there. Maybe there's certain passages that you've read or certain things people have taught over the years. And you're just like, I just can't. Get over that. Maybe it's just kind of your understanding of God. When you think of God, what comes to your mind is not a God who's compassionate and gracious. But because these things, because the world you look at, you're like, how can he be when I see these things, right? And those are all valid things to wrestle with. But as we as we read this, as we read compassionate and gracious, sometimes we, we assume we boil this down to this cheap word. We say, God is nice. God is nice. Now, I like being nice. I pride myself in being nice most times. But that is such a, I don't even, I, I wouldn't say God is nice. That's too cheap of a word. It's too thin of a word. It's too meaningless of a word to say that God is nice. But these words gracious and compassionate, they have so much, so much richer, deeper meaning, right? That contained in these two words. Rahun and Kadun. What's, what's contained in these two words is a deep emotion. A deep emotion in our stomach that leads to a response. It's a stirring in our heart that, that leads us to action. That doesn't leave us here. If it stirs within our hearts, we don't just look on, but we step into action. It's a visceral instinct that provokes movement within us. That compassion always leads to a gracious response. And oftentimes in our world, we see one or the other, right? We will see compassion with no action, right? We see something, we say, oh, that's so sad, right? Or oftentimes people get frustrated because we will say thoughts and prayers, we'll never pray, we'll never think about it, we'll never step out in action, right? That we have compassion, but with no action behind it, right? But on the flip side, what we see oftentimes is we see compulsion with no compassion, 
Like we feel like we just gotta do something because it's maybe out of guilt or out of duty or just getting something done or a checklist and we, we have compulsion but no true compassion for something, right? Throw some change in the Salvation Army bucket because we feel compulsion but no true compassion. But God is a God who's first and foremost full of both compassion and mercy of graciousness. Now I wanna I wanna take a look at each one of these words quickly and then do look show you a story. First word here, we'll hit these quick, is compassionate. This word Rahum, compassionate. That God is emotionally invested. He's emotionally invested in his creation, he's emotionally invested in his people, and he's emotionally invested in you. And you may be like, that's cool. That's not true. You may feel like that's just not true. But this word rahum, it's related to the Hebrew word for a mother's womb. This is important. This word rahum, it's related to the Hebrew word for a mother's womb. It's one of the pictures that scripture gives us. One of the pictures it gives us for God's compassion is that of a nursing mother. You think about the intimacy, the tenderness of a, of a nursing mother, right? It's a word that, that carries with it much emotion and tenderness. Can you feel the tenderness in that, that word picture of a nursing mother? It communicates the, the, the mother's feelings towards a vulnerable child. You know what a baby can do? A baby can do nothing. A baby can do nothing except for cry out in its need, right? That's all a baby can do. In Isaiah 49, you see this powerful picture where God says this, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no what? No compassion, no rahum on the child she has born. And he says this, though she may forget. Though, he tells this, this, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Because she have no compassion on this baby? Will she forget? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Some of you may have heard that before. God has engraved us on the palm of his hands. He's talking about Jerusalem. The walls, your walls are ever before me. That this compassion, like this, this, the compassion of a mother is the compassion God has for his people. This, this tenderness, I, you know, I, my, my wife, she was, she was a girl I liked 14 years ago. And then she became my girlfriend. Then she became my wife. And about four years ago, even before that, when she became pregnant with her first son, Camden, she became a mother. And I've got to watch her go from being my, my wife to this mother who this whole new side of her has shown up, right? This whole new side of her has shown up and she's compassionate and caring and just all this stuff. And it's, it's funny, and I, every husband, I heard, uh, I heard one of our other pastors, Pastor Tony, share this example. I think it's so true. And if you're a dad, you've had this experience where you have, you have your, your son or your daughter, this newborn baby, you're figuring out sleep habits, and it's quite literally a nightmare, right? And you're trying to figure out these sleep habits and all these things. And you finally, you wake up every two hours and you stumble around getting a bottle of milk or trying to help your wife with something. And there will be those nights where, where you wake up at like 6 a.m. You go to bed at like 11, you wake up at 6 and you're like, oh, honey, honey, they slept through the night. They did it. They slept through the night. And she just looks at you like you're the stupidest human on the planet because she's been up 15 times. And the baby didn't sleep through the night. You slept through the night, right? But, but you, know why, you know why I sleep through the night? Sarah wakes up. Because there's this, this compassion, right? There's this, this compassion for this vulnerable child that is innate to a mother, right? Mother is such a picture of the gospel, right? That you give and you serve and you give your life to and you get, for the most part, nothing really back at the time, except for exhaustion, right? 
that we see this beautiful picture, but we also see the psalmist. The psalmist communicates this idea of rahum, of, of compassion for even that a father has for the children. Look at in Psalm 103, it's a beautiful passage. As a father has compassion, rahum, on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, on his children. For he knows that we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That God has compassion on us because he knows where we've got, he has created us. He knows our origin. He knows our temporariness, our, our fragility, the, our need. He knows us and he has compassion as a father has for his children. I am a dad. I'm figuring out parenting. Camden is four and I'm figuring out, you know, uh, discipline. It's, uh, t- discipline is tough, right? You figure it out. It's kind of a guess and check game sometimes. And, and I'm not always the most patient person. So sometimes me and me and Cam are duking it out throughout the day, and we'll lay in bed at nighttime, and, you know, I've, at this point, taken away everything from him, discipline. I've run out of ideas, right? So we just go to bed. And we'll be praying, and like, Camden, I'll pray, and then, Camden, do you want to pray? And he'll say, yeah, I'll pray. And he just, <laughs> he'll go, Jesus, I'm having a hard day. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all the figuring out, you know, disobedience and a strong-willed child and all these things kind of fade. And I have compassion for my son. Why? Because just as God has compassion on his children, I have compassion for, I, I know that he was, I know that he's my son. I know that just like me, he's a human who is formed. I know that just as I'm trying to navigate the world and figure out my emotions and figure it out, he is navigating the world, figuring out his emotions. This is a couple years behind me, right? And I have compassion for my son, right? We see this in Jesus. We see this in Jesus. Jesus has this tender compassion. In Luke 13, 34, we see the same almost motherly picture where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who'll kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. That he's looking at Jerusalem. He's, ah, you guys, you guys, the ones we sent, you killed. He says, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He's like, I've longed to bring you back to myself. You've killed the prophets. You turned your backs on me. You want to do it your own way. And I have longed to bring you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. We see this this maternal picture in Jesus, but we also see this, look, in Matthew 9, you've heard this before. When Jesus saw the crowds, believers, unbelievers, when he sees the crowds, he had compassion. This word Hebrew gets translated to Greek. it's It's similar to this womb picture where it stirs his guts, messes him up on the inside. He feels it to his core because they were harassed and helpless. They were helpless like a sheep without a shepherd that Jesus was messed up on the inside. St. Thomas Aquinas, a church father, says this, I would rather feel compassion than know the meaning of it. And I think that is a great description because compassion, Hanun, is a feeling word. It's a feeling word. It's not something that you, you just understand, but it's something that you feel, right? Sometimes there's pictures that we see of devastation, of brokenness, that we don't just see and say, that is sad, but we feel it. There's songs that we hear, maybe breakup songs that we don't just hear, but we feel it, right? It stirs within us. There's compassion, right? There's situations that you aren't just aware of. Maybe these terrible things you see. You're looking at Turkey right now with the earthquakes. You don't just see these pictures, but you feel them, right? God possesses these traits. He's not just a disconnected deity, but he is a God who is compassionate, who is emotionally invested. For some of us, we don't believe that to be true, and that's important for us to understand today as we talk about the compassion of God as he's emotionally invested in us. That his, that his compassion doesn't just stop with the feeling, but God is 
gracious. And his graciousness leads him to action. That is this gracious word, this hanun is the word. And it's this action word to show grace or to show favor, right? Oftentimes this word is used to describe in the Old Testament a beautiful gift given. And we use it this way in in our language today in different ways, right? You graced us with your presence. You graced us with that beautiful singing voice, right? Or even, you see, this deer ran so gracefully, right? There's almost this this gracious gift, this beautiful, this kind of picture of beauty that is given, right? This beautiful action, this beautiful gift given. But this takes on new meaning. It takes on new weight. It takes on new beauty when the favor of the gift is given to someone who doesn't deserve it, right? Like if someone is graciously, you grace somebody who deserved it and they're appreciative of it, or you grace somebody with your presence and they're appreciative of it, that it takes on one meaning. But when you give it to someone who doesn't appreciate it, doesn't understand it, doesn't deserve it, well, now it takes on new meaning, right? I think that this picture is, is most, most perfectly summed up in the story of the prodigal son. If you haven't even been around church, you've heard the story of the prodigal son, right? There's, which is better ma- named maybe the prodigal father. Because being a prodigal is someone who recklessly lavishes on something. And, and that's the picture of the father. The father has two sons. And his youngest son one day says, Father, I want, I want all your money. I want, my inher- I want my inheritance. Basically what he's saying is, Father, give me my inheritance. He's basically saying, I wish that you were dead so I can have my money. And he goes off and he lives a lavish life. He spends on everything. The casinos booze, pays for the premium Netflix account. He just goes out and spends all the money on his life and he comes up empty. And he's going to come back to his father and he has this kind of internal conversation. He finds himself eating out of pig pens and he starts thinking, I should just go home. And so he starts having this eternal internal conversation. I am just going to show up. I'm going to ask my dad if I can just kind of stay out in the shed and just kind of eat out of the pigsty and I'm not going to bug you. And he starts having this conversation with himself, right? But look at this, that while he was still a long way off, the son is returning home. And while he was a long way off, his father saw him from a distance and what was filled with compassion. That his father was filled with compassion for the son. Why? Because his son was vulnerable and in need. And he, the father was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. That the compassion of the father, this internal, just emotionally stirring of the son and the father, caused him to jump off the porch and run, which would have been disrespectful, which would have been, which would have been not proper for the father to do. And he runs to the son. And he gives him the family credit card and puts his robe on him that his compassion led to action. That this is the grace we often hear about, right? The grace of undeserved favor, getting something that we do not deserve. And now you may be like, yes, this is a story Jesus is telling. It's a very Jesus thing. But sometimes we have a hard time believing that this is an Old Testament God thing. There's this beautiful passage. We just talked about Nehemiah in our last series, Through All, For All. But we see this in Nehemiah 9. We see that, that Nehemiah is, they are confessing the sins of their people. That they are rebuilding the city. There's a whole story of the Israelite people that God led them out of Egypt, gave them the covenant, kind of, kind of led them to take into the land of promise. They eventually became, they wanted a king. They became a nation. But time and time again, they would turn until eventually God's allowed their enemies to come and send them into exile. And Nehemiah finds them coming back after a generation to rebuild Jerusalem. And as they're rebuilding Jerusalem, they're rediscovering the book of the law and they are, they are acknowledging the sins of their ancestors, which is important to note. 
And what we see is that they're confessing the sins of their ancestors. And we see in Nehemiah 9, I'd encourage you to read it, they tell kind of the story of Israel. Kind of this poetic, beautiful story of Israel. And in there, early on in chapter 9, he quotes Exodus 34. Your compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding love and faithfulness. He quotes Exodus 34. But in Nehemiah 9, verse 27, says this. Walk with me through this. Because we see that this grace of God, this gracious action of God, is not just a Jesus thing. It's a God thing, right? It's a God of the Old Testament thing. It's the same God, right? So you deliver them into the hands of the enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven and you heard them. And in your great compassion, what you gave, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the land of their enemies. This is kind of the the pattern of Israel. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. This is the exile, right? This is what happens in the exile. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you deliver them time after time. Do you ever feel this way? Do you ever hear this is us, right? That we're like, oh, I'm in sin. I got to get out of this stuff. Sounds going well. Lord, 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 please come to me. And we kind of get out of it. We, Lord is gracious to us. And then as soon as we get comfortable, we kind of go back again. Look what happens. God says, you warn them in order to turn them back to your law, to your way of living. But they became arrogant, disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of what you said. The person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, but they became, they became stiff-necked. We saw that last week when the people, when the people kind of sacrificed and, and kind of made this, this golden calf, right? They became stiff-necked and they refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them by your spirit. You warned them through your prophets, the prophets that we see were constantly trying to point the people back to God, yet they paid no attention. So this is the exile. You gave them into your neighboring peoples, but in your great mercy, You did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. That we see this pattern time and time again. God God delivering his people. God giving them a way of life. God being gracious to them. And them sacrificing golden calves, turning their backs, worshiping other gods, prostituting themselves out to other nations. And God says, okay. This is what Romans said. Turn them over to the sin. Okay, do what you want to do. But as soon as they cried out, he brought them back just for them to do it again and again. This is the pattern that we see, right? And the story of the scriptures of mankind is time and time again us turning our back into our own ways. Time after time doing our own thing, but God forgives. He delivers and eventually he steps in as one of us because he is a God of gracious action. That he's emotionally invested, that he's a God of action, but for the sake of today... I want to say it this way, and you don't have to agree with me. Maybe I could word it different, but God is not fair. Or maybe to us, he doesn't seem fair. And I, want, I, want, I told you we're going to look at these two words. I want to give us a case study uh, kind of quickly on, on how this shows up. And I want us to live in the tension of this. Last week, we kind of talked about the tension of the powerful and personal God. And today, I, I want to challenge you to live in the tension of his compassion and his grace. I'm going to continue to live in that, that struggle. So there's the story, you may have heard the story of Jonah. And I've, I've shared this before, but the story of Jonah. You know, you think about the big fish, but Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was one of, one of the people God chose that he want, God wanted to communicate his truth through Jonah. And so Jonah was one of his prophets. And in, in, in Jonah, it's a short book of the prophets in the Old Testament. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh 
and, and call them to repentance. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, call them to repentance. And Jonah says, nope. And Jonah goes the opposite way. Now, why is that? Because it's easy to kind of read over this. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at the time. And now a, a general city, a big city would have 3,000 people. You know, it would have a lot of people. But, but Nineveh was a huge city. They estimate 120,000 people in the city. Like there's a lot of people here. God cares for people, right? And so there's a lot of people in the, in the capital of Assyria, which is one of their enemies. But the thing about the Ninevites, where they weren't just neighboring countries that had conflicts watched very much, the, the Ninevites were rough people, barbaric people. Reading this week, there's all these different quotes about that kind of came from, from history about the people of, of Nineveh. And they were, the leaders, they were barbaric, they were inhumane. They would stretch people's flesh out. They would have piles of heads that they would flay rival kings, that they would put chains through their necks and walk them around like dogs, that they were, were enemies to the Jews. Whole nine yards, these were rough dudes, like, ugh, not good people, right? Maybe one of the most clear examples we can have is is the the Nazis and the Jews at the time of World War II like harsh realities, right? Like kind of maybe the best parallel we have, like feel the weight of that. And so when God says, Jonah, I want you to go 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 prophesy. I want you to go call to repentance these people, he's like, nah, dude, no. Nah. And so he gets on a boat and he goes the opposite direction. And Jonah's on this boat and the storms whip up and the people on the boat that he's with are getting freaked out. They're praying to their gods. And Jonah's like, it's me. It's me. I am the reason that, that this is happening. He says, chuck me overboard. So they chuck him overboard. And he gets swallowed up by a big fish, right? And this fish takes him where? After three days in the fish, spits him out where? Welcome to Nineveh. Population 120,000. Glad you're here. And Jonah finds himself in Nineveh. And Jonah gives a very half-hearted sermon to the people of Nineveh. He basically just says, repent. He doesn't really give a lot of details. And then what happens? What happens? It's a fascinating passage. In Jonah 3, verse 7. By the decree of the king and his nobles, this is the king of Nineveh, in response to this half-hearted message of Jonah, the king of Nineveh says, by decree of his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Kind of this picture of repentance. Let everyone be called, ur- let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That's fascinating. This, this half-hearted sermon, we see the king of Nineveh. Cause people, this is, this is, may we turn from this and who knows, maybe God will show us compassion. When God saw what they did and how they turned, they repented, they turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Look at this, all capital Lord. He prayed to Yahweh, invokes God's personal name, Yahweh. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I didn't want to come in the first place. This is why I went the opposite way. This is why I avoided your call. This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He says, I knew that you were a compassionate 
your gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. He says, now Lord, now Yahweh, take away my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. Like this is, we talk about God's grace. We talk about his compassion and we just think we're listening to the fish and it's just beautiful, nice weather for everybody. And some of us, when we walk through this, we struggle because we're like, God is slow to anger. We're like, he's got anger? I don't like that. That he's just and that he visits the iniquity, that, that sin has generational effects, that God is just and he pays for sin. We're like, oh. Sometimes we struggle. We don't feel like God is compassionate enough. And we feel like he should be more affirming, more accepting, more compassionate. But have you ever wrestled with the fact that God is maybe too compassionate? Because there are, there are different different cultures throughout time and history that have a a lot more of a struggle with this. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we allow ourselves to kind of be honest and dig deep with ourselves, we will struggle with God's compassion as well. Because what does it look like? What does it look like when God shows compassion, when he shows grace to our bullies, to our ex, to our boss who mistreated me, mishandled me, misfired me? to my political opponents that I hate what they believe, I hate what they stand for, I hate their rhetoric, the friend who hurt me deeply, you fill in the blank. I don't have to say it. You know who that person is. When you're like, yeah, 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 God ain't showing compassion to them, not to my Nineveh. What What does it look like when God shows compassion to them, shows grace to them? Because we want compassion for ourselves, but we want justice for our enemies. And this proves that we might not fully understand the compassion and the mercy of God. If we just want it for ourselves, we want it for ourselves, but not for you, not for you, we may not fully get a picture. We may not fully understand our need for it in the first place. Romans 5 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we weren't just, you know, a little bad. We were his enemies. We were opposed to his ways, turned our backs on him, wanted to do things our ways, wanted to worship our own gods, fulfill our own desires, use him to get what we wanted in our lives. Well, we were his enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? We were once his enemies. While we were his enemies, he died for us. But we chose to be God's enemies from picking apples off the trees to making golden cows. Our disposition was opposition to God. That's our natural state. Yet he shows us compassion. He shows us grace in our sin. Why? Because God is not fair. Because he is not fair. If God was fair, we would be toast. If God was fair, he would say, prove yourself. Earn your way into this life. Prove that you can keep it up. But just like in Nehemiah, where time and time again, he says, do what you want to do. And when you call out, I will come back to you. I'll show you compassion. Just as in Nehemiah, he does the same for you. And you may be watching and you may be like, I feel that right now. I feel the weight of my sin. I feel my need. I call, I need his compassion. But you may be watching and you're like, "Mm, I feel that right now. I feel fine. I'm on week seven of my Bible study plan, Aiden. I'm doing great. And you may not feel like you need his compassion. Max Licato says this, 
I think it's powerful. He says, Scripture says the more that we see our sinfulness, the more we see God's abounding grace. And this is true. You know how we see our need for God? It's either our sin or our suffering is usually the main avenues. He says, to abound is to have a surplus on abundance, an extravagant portion. He says, should the fish in the Pacific worry that we will run out of ocean? No. Why? Because the ocean abounds with water. Need the lark be anxious to be finding room in the sky to fly? No, the sky abounds with space. So should the Christian worry that the cup of God's mercy, his compassion, his graciousness will run empty? He may. We may worry about that. For we may not be aware of God's abounding grace. Are you? Are you aware that the cup God gives for you overflows with mercy? Or are you afraid that your cup will run dry? Or your mistakes too great for God's grace? God is not a miser with his grace. Your cup may be low on cash or clout, but it's overflowing with mercy for you and for your enemies. Because God's grace is not fair. Now, sometimes the way that we interact with God is important. The way that we see this plays out. I've recently been doing this with my four-year-old Camden where I, I stand him up and I, I put him up on our counter. And he's always a little, and he's kind of nervously laughing, right? He's standing up on the counter and he's a little nervous. And I'm always like, jump, 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 right? And he, he at the beginning, he's very nervous of it. He doesn't want to. And what I'll do is I'll pull his shirt, <laughs> mainly because I, I love seeing the fear strike his face. I'm a bad dad, but I'll pull him and he'll, and I'll catch him and then he laughs and I'll put him up on the counter and I'll pull him off and I'll catch him and he'll laugh. And a couple different things will happen when I do this. Sometimes he gets up on the counter and he feels very confident in himself and in his abilities. And he like just wants to jump. I'm like, whoa, 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 dude. We're not going to jump. Like he feels like he and none of himself can handle it. And he, he is able to do it on himself. He judges the situation, right, based on what he thinks he can do. And other times he gets up there and he kind of looks out and it's very high and he gets very nervous and he gets very unsettled and he kind of sees the situation and he, he judges the situation based kind of on the circumstance, right? But when I kind of pull him and he falls and I grab him and he laughs, all of a sudden he kind of, he remembers who I am, that I'm powerful to him and, and, and loving. And he, he jumps into my arms based on, based on my character, based on him knowing that I'm not going to drop him, I'm not going to pull him and then watch him hit the ground, but that I love him, right? And in, in his book, John Mark Comer kind of talks about this and the way that we interact with God. And I, I think it was, it was powerful. That sometimes when we interact with God, maybe in prayer, we come to God and, and we look around at the world, we come and we, we base our interaction with God based on our record. Lord, I've I, I done this. I've, I've kept in line. I've been on the Bible study reading plan. I haven't done these sins for a while and I'm, I'm doing what I need to do. Why is life going rough? Why do I feel like you don't hear me? Why do I feel like you're not present, right? Because it's based on our record, based on our ability. But then sometimes it's, it, we, we come to God based on what we see in the world, our experiences. We look out what we see, right? We see earthquakes happening and we see division happening and we see all these different things. We say, God, what I see in the world is not going great. So why are you da-da-da, right? We, we base our interaction with God based on our circumstances, right? And these are very understandable. These are our defaults, right? But what I think this passage points us to, what I want to challenge us with, is to look to God not based on our circumstances, not based on our emotions, not based on what we see, but based on His character. That when we come to God, it's not, God, this should be what happens because I have done no. God, this is what I see. Why aren't you... 
No. We can be honest about those things. When we come to God, what does it look like to come to God and say, God, I'm struggling. God, I don't understand. But what I know is that you are a God who is compassionate and merciful and coming to God based on his character, based on who he is, based on his nature. Because it's not until that becomes our default that we start to grasp and get a hold of that that this compassion and grace starts to naturally flow from us. We looked at last week that God calls his people in the Old Testament to bear his name, to carry his name in the New Testament. Jesus calls us to be his ambassadors, to rep to, he's making his appeal to the world through us. Paul says in Ephesians, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another. This action word, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That our, the understanding of the way that we view God and the understanding of the way that we are going to respond to God is in response to his grace, that he is not fair. And as we begin to get a hold of that, that is what is going to flow from us. And that is what he has called us to do, is to live in response to his grace and compassion. And if we are withholding mercy and compassion, if we are withholding that, then it points us to the fact that there's probably something within us that hasn't truly gotten a hold of his grace. And I hate to break it to you. There's a lot of ways that he shows this to us, but primarily it shows up in our own sin, in our own suffering. And we see our need for his compassion and it flows from us. What does it look like for ourselves to allow ourselves to be stirred? And I'm not just talking about like Sarah McLaughlin, like Pets commercial where there's music and it's black and white and you see the puppies out in the rain and it's like, oh my heart. But what does it look like for us to be stirred with compassion the way that God has been stirred with compassion for his people? To walk with people in their suffering and let it affect us emotionally, deeply. Oftentimes we just don't have time for it. That we want to receive God's grace and care for our life. But I think to receive God's compassion and grace is to be stirred and to pause and look at people the way God did. And to step into action alongside God. Will you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that you are a God full of compassion and full of mercy. That often our, our disposition, the way that we interact with you can be based on our own our own, our own understanding, be based on our own view of the world, our own view of ourselves. But I pray that you'd help us to come to you, to understand you based on your character and your nature. God, we are thankful that you are not fair, that in, in you are compassionate and gracious, that, that you give us what we don't deserve. The gift that you give us is not one that we have earned. And so I pray that you would humble us, that you would help us to see ourselves for who we really are, the need that we really have, Lord. God, I pray for some of us who we've heard these words a billion times and they've just become stale to us. That we might just discover the, the intimacy of your, of your grace and compassion in a way that we haven't understood it before. And that you might reveal it to us through relationships and through circumstances that we might experience your compassion and grace. It's because you alone that we pray. Amen.